Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumlaw Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumlaw or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumlaw.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Uh, I'm super excited uh, that all of you are here today on this beautiful Father's Day. Uh, To all the fathers who are watching right now, thank you for leading your families well and making these Sunday mornings a a priority. Uh, If you're new around here, uh, we are so glad that you decided to tune in here today, uh, that you decided to give Grumlaw a chance. And with that, I want to issue a challenge, but also an invitation to come back for at least three straight weeks. Uh, And the reason we say that is every single week is different. Every single week is unique. And we think it's just going to take at least a couple of weeks, like a lot of things in this life, uh, to really get an accurate feel of of what we're all about here. And and I'm pretty bullish on the point that, that if you do that, you'll, you'll kind of get hooked. That This will be a place that you want to come back to, that you want to continue uh, to visit, uh, that you want to continue to get plugged in deeper and deeper level. As we move closer to God, he will always move closer to us. And, and today we are continuing in a series uh, that we began a couple of weeks ago titled Upside Down. Now, if you haven't been here for the entirety of this series, have no fear. You can always get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com slash messages, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church or wherever it is that you grab your podcast. But what we're doing in this series is we're walking through some statements that, that Jesus makes right at the beginning of what is undeniably his most famous and, and it's also his longest sermon, at least his longest recorded sermon. Uh, most biblical scholars believe it was the largest crowd that, that Jesus ever preached to, with, with some estimates saying as high as 40,000 people. These eight statements that we're exploring over the months of June and July, uh, they're traditionally referred to as the Beatitudes. Now, for some of you watching right now, that is literally the first time that you've ever heard or, or seen that word beatitude. Now, now, we would most commonly translate this word as, as blessedness. It's why each of these statements, again, dub the beatitudes, they start with that word blessed. But as we unpacked in part one, it's so much more than, than happiness or, or favor. There's rather a divine component to what Jesus is referencing when he uses this term. It's underscored by God's grace in the life of of his followers. That is, the type of blessedness that Jesus is referencing in the Beatitudes, it's unattainable apart from God himself. You can't earn it. It's rather something that is reserved for those who are earnestly seeking God. And believe it or not, even if this is all new to you right now, you actually know what, what I'm talking about. See, it's those instances when you meet those people those almost otherworldly people that, that, that almost immediately cause you to think, what does that person have that, that I don't? How is it that they're so calm in the midst of all of this chaos happening in their lives? How are they keeping their cool when everyone else is losing their minds? How are they showing such kindness in the midst of such vitriol? How do they have so much joy? How do they have so much patience? Where does that come from? And straight away, you can tell it's not fake because we've actually met those people as well, right? That, that is, ironically, just as easy to sniff out. No, 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 you know when there's something truly different. And, and almost immediately, without even thinking, there's something inside of you that whispers, I, I want that. I, I want the, the peace that that person has. I want the patience that person has. I want the joy. I want the gentleness. I want the calm that just seems to emanate from them. And the reason that it stands out so much, in addition to the fact that it so sharply contradicts what the world models, 
is because there's, there's truly something divine about it. It's a nod to our creator. It's a glimpse of heaven. It's, it's what you are, in fact, offered once you surrender your life to Jesus. I, impossible to find, at least long-term, apart from Jesus. So, so admittedly, these statements are about as upside-down as upside-down gets, uh, according to the world. But within the kingdom of heaven, well, this, this is just normal. It's a return to God's original design before sin started wreaking havoc on you and, and all the yous around you. Now, now, if you want to pull out your Bibles right now, or better yet, those Matthew scripture journals that so many of you picked up, uh, we're going to move this morning on to the second beatitude. Now, now, remember, as we dive here into Matthew chapter 5, massive crowd sitting in front of Jesus, all these people eagerly anticipating what is going to come out of Jesus' mouth. Again, it's about to be his longest sermon And the second beatitude, it reads like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, full disclosure, there was a conversation amongst our creative team, the people that planned these services, of which I'm a part, that that perhaps we we should swap this week's topic, this week's beatitude, for another week since, you know, it's Father's Day. And maybe it could be a bit of a buzzkill to talk about mourning this this morning. See see what I did there? Uh, But but we kept it, and, and here's why. Uh, dudes, can we just kind of be honest and, and admit that, that we're not very good at, at mourning? That, that we place this unhealthy expectation on ourselves to almost never show emotion? When the going gets tough, the, the tough get going. So, so truly, I, I felt like it was timely and, and oh-so-fitting, even Holy Spirit-led, that it would have fall on, on Father's Day. Dads, honestly, we probably need to hear this more than just about anyone else. Because here's what what we normally do. And, and when I say we, I'm not just referring to the dudes that are watching right now, though we might be the worst offenders, but th- this actually tends to be pretty universal. But what we normally do with grief and loss and sorrow, sorrow is, is we just sort of, we sort of bury it, right? I mean, we might, for instance, cry at the funeral because it's okay to, to cry at funerals, but, but then we just sort of stuff it. We just sort of, sort of bury it. See, see maybe you experience the, the loss of a, of a friend or, or a parent or or a loved one. And so we take it and we just kind of stuff it down there. Maybe your marriage isn't doing well. Maybe you've actually walked through a failed marriage and and we just, again, we just stuff it down there. The the friend who is so close with you, I mean, it's kind of served as a lifeline in your life. They, They unexpectedly move away and we, again, we just stuff it down there. The, the, the child who seems hell-bent on, on ruining their life, we, we again, we, we take it and we stuff it down there. The career, the business that didn't pan out the way that we had dreamt it, we stuff it down there. The battle with infertility and all those unmet expectations, we, we, we stuff it down there. We, we stuff it, we, we, we bury it, and come on, we, we, we hide it. We, we pretend that, that everything's okay. Because it's time to move on. There's stuff to do and people who need us. There's no time for mourning and lamenting the past. It's time to lift up our heads and move forward. But, but come on, just because it's not in front of us doesn't mean it's, it's not with us, right? No matter how much we smile, no matter how busy we keep ourselves, no, no matter how much we drink or self-medicate, even though we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And what happens is, is it becomes this unresolved grief and pain that, that we carry around. 
into virtually every interaction, into every conversation, into every meeting, into every day off, into every vacation. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's this weight that we carry around everywhere we, we go. You want to know what, what actually ends up happening? And, and you all actually know this. It, it doesn't stay hidden, does it? it? It starts to leak out at the most inopportune times and in, in the most unhealthy ways. You lose it on your kids for the smallest of incidents, like a tiny cup of water spills and you just go berserk. You're sitting at work just doing normal work and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're like fighting back tears. You're about to break down out of nowhere. You're completely unpresent. You're absent from the meal, from the date with your spouse. And when, when he or she rather innocently leans in to ask if everything is okay, I mean, you snap. You're critical of almost everyone in every situation. Your heart has gotten all kinds of hard. See, what happens is you prefer other emotions. You prefer emotions like, like, like anger. Because anger allows you to still feel in, in control. It, it, it allows you to feel like you have the power. Grief and, and sadness do not. They, they cause us to feel very much out of control. They cause us to feel powerless. Bitterness or, or a hardened heart, again, places me above the people a, a, around me. I can be cynical because then I don't have the problem. It's, it's everyone else. A, a, a low-grade depression begins to set in. Because if I allow myself to feel anything, including joy or happiness, it opens up the door for other feelings like sorrow and grief and pain. And that is going to make me feel very out of control. And well, nobody wants to feel out of control. So can we just right now kind of ask the question that I think is, is kind of begging to, to, to be asked? What, what is Jesus talking about? What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? See, I know I'm the pastor, so I'm just supposed to, from moment one of reading any passage of Scripture, completely agree with it. But, but what possible blessing could, could come out of mourning and grieving, such intense sadness? What am I missing? I, I recently officiated a funeral for, for a woman who, who has been a longtime part of this church a long time part of this faith community, and, and she passed away completely out of nowhere. She went to the hospital for a very minor issue, and then they found her unresponsive, and days later, she, she's gone. And, and I sat with her kids and, and her husband at the hospital, and I, I saw the pain in their eyes. I mean, what, what blessing could possibly come from, from that? See, every one of us, we recognize that pain and grief and mourning, that they're a part of this life. You're not going to escape it. But the problem is, is we find ourselves in a society that attempts to avoid grief and sorrow at, at all costs. We grieve exceedingly poorly. And for most of us, we, we learn to just live with it. We don't even know that there can be wholeness, that there can be healing on, on the other side of it. So we slap each other on the back and we say incredibly profound things like, good luck with that, or it's going to be okay, you'll, you'll learn to live with it, because we don't know what to do with it. It's not that we're trying to be unhelpful, 
It's not that we're trying to offer terrible advice. It's that we've never learned how to deal with grief either. So we're just kind of passing along horrible advice that other people have given us. Um, I, I've been a deer hunter uh, for a long time. My, my father is a deer hunter. My grandfather was a deer hunter. And so I, I found myself out in the deer woods by myself for the first time when I was, when I was 12 years old. Uh, and back so many years ago, this is over 20 years ago now, uh, not everyone had cell phones and, and we certainly didn't all have texting. And so the way that my brothers and, and I and my dad and the other people that we would hunt with, we would communicate with one another while we were hunting what was through Motorola walkie-talkies that had like these five-mile ranges. And when it was like time to go in or somebody was able to harvest an animal, you know, we'd get on there and we'd talk to each other and we had these little like microphones that connected to our ears. And uh, well, I being 12 years old, I mean, just imagine this, there was a day when you would have to go hunting and not have your phone to mess around on. I mean, it was, it was all kinds of boring. And so there was this feature on these walkie talkies uh, that you could press the scan button and, and clue in to any other conversations that other hunters might also be having on, on other channels. And so I would sit there all the time with my little earpiece in and I'd hit that scan button and I'd wait until it picked up another conversation. And I'd literally just kind of eavesdrop on these conversations with, with other hunters. And I can remember uh, this one time in particular, the, 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 the land that we were hunting on uh, was close to public property. And so you could hear, again, th these other conversations all the time. And I remember listening in on one in particular and uh, they were had these two men having a conversation and one asked, hey, have you seen anything? He's like, no, not really. He's like, was, was that you that shot? And he's like, yeah, it was me. He's like, well, you didn't see anything? He's like, no, at, at daybreak, there was, there was some wrestling in the bushes. And so I just took a couple of sound shots into the bush. And I'm sitting there at 12 years old thinking, you did what? Waiting, surely, for the other person to be like, that's a terrible idea. And he's like, oh, yeah, maybe a little bit later on in the day, I'll also get off a couple sound shots. And again, even at... 12 years old, I'm thinking to myself, please don't do that. I I'm not sure who, who gave you that advice, but, but that is a horrible, horrible idea. It, it'll, it'll be all right. You'll, you'll learn to live with it. And I picture Jesus just wanting to cannonball into our conversations. But please stop saying that. That is terrible advice. I, I am offering you something so much better. Do any of you watching right now know what, what the shortest verse in the Bible is? And all you Sunday school kids, you know the answer because you use this verse as a loophole at some point in your childhood because you were challenged to memorize a, a verse and you decided to take the way out because somebody smarter than you knew that there was a verse in the Bible that was exactly two words. And so you went right to your Sunday school teacher and you said those two words and they probably didn't let you get away with it. You got nothing out of the treasure chest full of oriental trading things and Tootsie Rolls. They're like, no, 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 that doesn't really count because it's only two words. Shortest verse in the Bible, we find it in John chapter 11, verse 35, John's gospel account, his biographical account of the life of Jesus. It's, it's again, two words, Jesus wept. And, and while a lot of Christians know that that's the shortest verse, a lot of people don't know, including a lot of Christians, that the greater context of this passage and knowing what happens before and after this verse, it provides a massive clue. It illustrates why Jesus would make this rather upside-down statement that those who mourn will actually be blessed. A little bit of background into this passage of Scripture. Uh, Jesus was very close friends with a certain family. It was two sisters and a brother to be specific, Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. If you read through the biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, you'll see these names pop up qu quite a bit. 
And Lazarus, it would at least appear from the text that we have, he gets sick and kind of out of nowhere. And he's like really sick. And Mary and Martha, having witnessed firsthand the healing power of Jesus, they go looking for Jesus and hopefully if they can find Jesus, surely he will intervene because again, he loves this family so much. I mean, he's healed all these strangers. Why wouldn't he heal Lazarus? And so they track him down, they find him. And strangely, Jesus doesn't act all that quickly. We actually make note of this often around here. Jesus never seemed to be in a hurry. In fact, we're explicitly told in verse 6 of John chapter 11, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. (laughs) And it feels out of place if you're actually paying attention when you read it, because again, I'll just speak for me. If I was to hear that a friend is on the verge of death, I'm going to move quickly, right? The verse, according to Shea, would have said something like, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he immediately rushed to find him. But, but not Jesus. But those two days pass, and I have to imagine Mary and Martha kind of losing their minds that Jesus isn't like moving quicker. And, and then Jesus makes this, this very intentional comment to, to his besties, his, his 12 disciples, these guys that he spent all this time with. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but, but I'm going to go there to, to wake him up. Now, now that's a very important detail because this little comment reveals that Jesus knew And hang on to this here. This is going to make a lot of sense later on in the story. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do upon his arrival to Lazarus' home. Now, his disciples, they thought that Jesus literally meant sleeping. They're like, what are you talking about? He's sleeping. Why are we going to go wake him up? They didn't understand that Jesus was actually referring to the fact that Lazarus was dead. And and if we're honest, we we can't really blame them, right? Because there wasn't exactly a track record at that point in history for dead people being raised back to life. Generally speaking, uh, when someone dies, they stay dead. So so Jesus, he just kind of cuts right through all that and speaks very, very plainly. He says, Lazarus is dead. Not sleeping, he's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But, But let us go to him. And they're all like, oh, we we get it now. Not sleeping. He's he's passed away. we're tracking with you, Jesus. And so Jesus, he arrives at the town, the, the town where, where Lazarus lives, and he's already been dead now for a couple of days. And Mary and Martha, they're doing their best to mask their frustration with Jesus that he did not act quicker. In fact, Mary and Martha both on separate occasions, they can't bite their tongues. Here's what, what Mary does. When, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I would imagine at this point that all of Jesus' disciples, that they're doing their best to not grin and elbow each other, knowing what was about to happen. Because remember, he predicted it. He told them plainly. But, but then something really interesting, call it strange, happens. We're told when Jesus saw her, that is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and, and troubled. And then, all of a sudden, what was happening in his spirit inside spills out outwardly for all to see. Cue that very short verse, Jesus wept. Now, come on. I want us to think about right now everything that we have just learned, everything that we just read. How confusing must have this been for the disciples? Did he change his mind? Was he now not going to raise Lazarus from the dead? 
Is the power suddenly gone? Has God abandoned him? Why is Jesus sad right now? Why is he crying? And in fact, others start mumbling as well. Hey, isn't this the guy that that does all the miracles? Couldn't he have surely healed his his friend? It's like, Jesus, what are you doing? Do what what you said you are going to do. Stop, Stop crying. And moments later, Jesus would stand at the entrance of Lazarus's tomb and with a quick prayer and a loud shout, well, Lazarus, come out, he says. And and the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and and a cloth around his face. I mean, he's literally in his grave clothes. He looks like a mummy. So so come on, you don't need to be a pastor or even a Christian to to raise an eyebrow at this. Isn't it a bit odd that that Jesus, between his his telling his friends he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and then actually raising Lazarus from the dead, stops, pauses, takes a time out, and weeps. He he mourns the loss of his friend. I I mean, after all, what's the use in mourning when you know that he's not going to stay dead? If you've been zoned out, bring it back in. I I don't want you to miss this. This this is the entire message in one statement. Jesus isn't absent from your pain. He he longs to enter into your pain with you. Jesus isn't watching from a distance with a low-grade apathy waiting for you to get over it. Hey, hit me up when you're done crying. No, no, no. He longs to enter into your sorrow, into your grief, into your mourning, into your pain. Come on. Jesus knew 100% that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But, But yet, he was compassionate enough. He was merciful enough. We could even say human enough to step into that pain and suffering with his friends. Church, around here, we don't worship a God who keeps us at an arm's length, who who only wants to talk to us when when we have it together. We worship a deeply personal God who willingly dove headfirst into our mess with us. And if you don't believe me, do not forget that this is the same God who would willingly get off of his throne in heaven, become flesh, just as human as you and I with all of our limitations, and eventually lovingly exchange his life for your sin. So you who are watching right now, no matter what you are going through, no matter how hard the season, no matter how lowly you feel, no no matter how poorly you have treated the people around you, Jesus wants to come alongside you and mourn with you. He desperately wants to meet you in that place. See, there's a huge difference between between grief and, and mourning. Grief is that mixed bag of internal memories and emotions and thoughts that just gnaw away at us. But, but mourning, that, that's the outward expression of all that stuff that, that we've worked so hard to keep buried, that, that we've stuffed down there, and we, and we give it permission to come out. We, we give ourselves permission to, to be human. Mourning becomes the outward expression of our grief. And admittedly, it takes tremendous courage to do this, especially in 21st century America, which is precisely why Jesus includes it amongst the Beatitudes. 
why it's underscored by, by his grace, by his working in your life. To, to truly mourn, well, you need Jesus. Good luck going at that alone. And fortunately for you, you don't have to. Jesus wants to mourn right alongside you, just as he did with his dear friends Mary and Martha. Jesus would never tell you, just move on. Now remember, Jesus is more for you than than even you. He, He wants you to experience healing. He wants you to be whole. And so he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they, it's a promise from the living God, will be comforted. And not some cheap comfort that that the world may temporarily offer. Not the token, hey, if you need anything, don't hesitate to call. But then three months later, when all of those texts and all those phone calls have dried up and you're still hurting, and everyone else has moved on, but you can't, Jesus says, I will still be there. I'll still weep with you. I will still listen. I will still sit with you. And there in that tender, intimate, so vulnerable, it hurts place. Jesus promises, I will comfort you. So, yeah, blessed are those who mourn. Church, it's it's here, in in that place, that, that we experience a depth of our Father's love that we cannot experience any other way. If you'll invite them in, If you allow yourself to mourn, you'll experience a peace, a wholeness, a healing, even a joy that that you wouldn't have been able to experience to find any other way. And and I want to make sure this is really, really clear. As my friend Scott Crownover points out, it's not about doing something new. It's not about adding something else to your already very busy life. Church, it's about letting go. Because think about it, how much time and and effort has it taken to, again, just stuff, to bury all of that? So so Jesus, he invites you to release it, to to mourn. And and then he promises that that he'll meet you in that place, and then you will be made whole. You will experience healing. You will be comforted. You will actually be, be blessed. My wife and I, we, we continue to kind of keep the whole church updated with what's going on with our third child, Oakley, and uh, I'm happy to report that we are we are on the home stretch. So far, this has been a 39-month journey since we first brought Oakley home through foster care and again, moving into that process of, of finally adopting him. And, and it's been a journey that, that's been filled with both highs and, and lows. For any of you who have walked specifically through foster care to adoption, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And ironically, it was almost exactly a year ago that I can remember, honestly, like my, my lowest moment. Um, I was over at my brother's house and uh, we were playing catch like a, a couple of 12-year-olds uh, with a baseball. And as you often do when you're playing catch with someone, you're just kind of talking about life and what's going on. And he was asking a lot of questions about specifically Oakley and the situation. And, and I remember I had sunglasses on and, and there were just tears just flowing down my cheeks. And I remember uttering the words to him, Trevor, we need a miracle. 
And I remember going home that night and I wept and I yelled at God and I tried to reason with God and I tried to bargain with God, all of which is, is mourning. I, I mourned with God. And throughout this process, as it felt at different times like, oh my goodness, that we're going to lose our, our kid. I had to remind myself as I was reading through the gospel accounts that, that God knows exactly what, what I was walking through. Because if we remember, God, he, he lost his son. All of those emotions, all of those feelings that, 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 that were going through my head, all, all, all the, the pain and the hurt that I was feeling, God felt all of that too. He knew exactly firsthand what I was feeling because he would eventually actually give up his son for, for you and I. So he's not a God who's absent from your pain. He, he knows exactly what you're walking through and he longs to enter into that pain. So he tells us, mourn. And there you will be comforted. And you'll experience a blessedness that only he can provide.